Chapter 29 Rabindranath Tagore and I Compare Schools Rabindranath Tagore taught us to sing as a natural form of self-expression, as effortlessly as birds. Nath, a bright fourteen-year-old lad at my ranchy school, gave me that explanation after I had complimented him one morning on his melodious outbursts. With or without provocation, the boy poured forth a tuneful stream. He had previously attended the famous Tagore school, Shanti Nikitan, Haven of Peace, in Bolpur. The songs of Rabindranath have been on my lips since early youth, I told my companion. All Bengalis, even the unlettered peasants, delight in his lofty verse. Bahola and I sang together a few refrains from Tagore, who set to music thousands of Indian poems, some of his own composition and others of ancient origin. I met Rabindranath soon after he had received the Nobel Prize for Literature, I remarked after our vocalising. I was drawn to visit him because I admired his undiplomatic courage in disposing of his literary critics. I chuckled. Bola, curious, inquired the story. The scholars severely flayed Tagore for introducing a new style into Bengali poetry, I began. He mixed colloquial and classical expressions, ignoring all the prescribed imitations dear to the pundits' hearts. His songs embody deep philosophic truth in emotionally appealing terms, with little regard for the accepted literary forms. An influential critic spitefully referred to Rabindranath as a pigeon poet who sold his cooings in print for a rupee. But Tagore's revenge was at hand. The whole Western literary world paid homage at his feet, soon after he himself had translated into English his Gitanjali, Song Offerings. A trainload of pundits, including his one-time critics, went to Shanti Nikitan to offer their congratulations. Rabindranath received his guests only after an intentionally long delay, and then heard their praise in stoic silence. Finally, he turned against them their own habitual weapons of criticism. Gentlemen, he said, the fragrant honours you here bestow are incongruously mingled with the putrid odours of your past contempt. Is there possibly any connection between my award of the Nobel Prize and your suddenly acute powers of appreciation? I am still the same poet who displeased you when I first offered my humble flowers at the Shrine of Bengal. The newspapers published an account of the bold chastisement given by Tagore. I admired the outspoken words of a man unhypnotized by flattery. I went on. I was introduced to Rabindranath in Calcutta by his secretary, Mr. C. F. Andrews, who was simply attired in a Bengali dhoti. He referred lovingly to Tagore as Gurudeva. Rabindranath received me graciously. He emanated an aura of charm, culture, and courtliness. Replying to my question about his literary background, he told me that he had been chiefly influenced by our religious epics and by the works of Vidyapati, a popular 14th-century poet. Inspired by these memories, I began to sing Tagore's version of an old Bengali song, Light the Lamp of Thy Love, 
Paula and I chanted joyously as we strolled over the Vidyalaya grounds. About two years after founding the Ranchi school, I received an invitation from Rabindranath to visit him at Shanti Nikitan and discuss our educational ideals. I went gladly. The poet was seated in his study when I entered. I thought then, as at our first meeting, that he was as striking a model of superb manhood as any painter could desire. His beautifully chiselled face, nobly patrician, was framed in long hair and flowing beard. Large, melting eyes, an angelic smile, and a voice of flute-like quality that was literally enchanting. Stalwart, tall and grave, he combined an almost womanly tenderness with the delightful spontaneity of a child. No idealised conception of a poet could find more suitable embodiment than in this gentle singer. Tagore and I were soon deep in a comparative study of our schools, both founded along unorthodox lines. We discovered many identical features, outdoor instruction, simplicity, ample scope for the child's creative spirit. Rabindranath, however, laid considerable stress on the study of literature and poetry, and on the self-expression through music and song that I had already noted in the case of Bola. The Shanti Nikatan children observed periods of silence, but were given no special yoga training. The poet listened with flattering attention to my description of the energizing yogoda exercises and of the yoga concentration techniques taught to all students at Ranchi. Tagore told me of his own early educational struggles. I fled from school after the fifth grade, he said, laughing. I could readily understand how his innate poetic delicacy would be affronted by the dreary, disciplinary atmosphere of a schoolroom. That is why I opened Shanti Nikatan under the shady trees and the glories of the sky. He motioned eloquently to a little group studying in the beautiful garden. A child is in his natural setting amidst the flowers and songbirds. There he may more easily express the hidden wealth of his individual endowment. True education is not pumped and crammed in from outward sources, but aids in bringing to the surface the infinite hoard of wisdom within. I agreed and added, in ordinary schools, the idealistic and hero-worshipping instincts of the young are starved on an exclusive diet of statistics and chronological eras. The poet spoke lovingly of his father, Devendranath, who had inspired the Shanti Nikitan beginnings. Father presented me with this fertile land, where he had already built a guest house and temple. Rabindranath told me, I started my educational experiment here in 1901 with only ten boys. The eight thousand pounds that came with the Nobel Prize all went for the upkeep of the school. The elder Tagore, Devendranath, known far and wide as Maharishi, great sage, was a very remarkable man, as one may discover from his autobiography. Two years of his manhood were spent in meditation in the Himalayas. In turn, his father, Dwarkanath Tagore, had been celebrated throughout Bengal for his munificent public benefactions. From this illustrious tree has sprung a family of geniuses. Not Rabindranath alone. All his relatives have distinguished themselves in creative expression. His nephews, Gogonendra and Abanindra, 
are among the foremost artists of India. Rabindranath's brother, Dwijendra, was a deep-seeing philosopher, beloved even by birds and woodland creatures. Rabindranath invited me to stay overnight in the guesthouse. In the evening I was charmed by a tableau of the poet and a group in the patio. Time unfolded backward. The scene before me was like one in an ancient hermitage, the joyous singer encircled by his devotees, all aureoled in divine love. Tagore knitted each tie of friendship with chords of harmony. Never assertive, he drew and captured the heart with an irresistible magnetism, rare blossom of poesy blooming in the garden of the Lord, attracting others by a natural fragrance. In his melodious voice, Rabindranath read to us a few of his exquisite poems, newly created. Most of his songs and plays, written for the delectation of his students, have been composed at Shanti Nikitan. The beauty of his lines, to me, lies in his art of referring to God in nearly every stanza, yet seldom mentioning the sacred name. Drunk with the bliss of singing, he wrote, I forget myself and call thee friend, who art my lord. The following day, after lunch, I bade the poet a reluctant farewell. I rejoice that his little school has now grown to an international university, Visvabharati, where scholars from many lands find an ideal environment. Where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depth of truth, where tireless striving stretches its arms toward perfection, where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sand of dead habit, where the mind is led forward by thee into ever-widening thought and action, into that heaven of freedom, my father, let my country awake. Chapter 30 The Law of Miracles The great novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote a delightful folktale, The Three Hermits. His friend, Nicholas Rorick, summarized it as follows. On an island there lived three old hermits. They were so simple that the only prayer they used was, We are three, thou art three, have mercy on us. Great miracles were manifested during this naive prayer. The local bishop came to hear about the three hermits and their inadmissible prayer, and decided to visit them in order to teach them the canonical invocations. He arrived on the island, told the hermits that their heavenly petition was undignified, and taught them many of the customary prayers. The bishop then left on a boat. He saw, following the ship, a radiant light. As it approached, he discerned the three hermits, who were holding hands and running upon the waves in an effort to overtake the vessel. "'We have forgotten the prayers you taught us,' they cried as they reached the bishop, "'and have hastened to ask you to repeat them.' The awed bishop shook his head. "'Dear ones,' he replied humbly, "'continue to live with your old prayer. "'How did the three saints walk on the water? "'How did Christ resurrect his crucified body? "'How did Lahiri Mahashai and Sri Yukteswar perform their miracles. Modern science has as yet no answer 
though with the advent of the atomic age, the scope of the world mind has been abruptly enlarged. The word impossible is becoming less prominent in man's vocabulary. The Vedic scriptures declare that the physical world operates under one fundamental law of Maya, the principle of relativity and duality. God, the soul life, is absolute unity. To appear as the separate and diverse manifestations of a creation, he wears a false or unreal veil. That illusory, dualistic veil is Maya. Many great scientific discoveries of modern times have confirmed this simple pronouncement of the ancient rishis. Newton's law of motion is a law of Maya. To every action there is always an equal and contrary reaction. The mutual actions of any two bodies are always equal and oppositely directed. Action and reaction are thus exactly equal. To have a single force is impossible. There must be and always is a pair of forces equal and opposite. Fundamental natural activities all betray their mayic origin. Electricity, for example, is a phenomenon of repulsion and attraction. Its electrons and protons are electrical opposites. Another example, the atom, or final particle of matter, is, like Earth itself, a magnet, with positive and negative poles. The entire phenomenal world is under the inexorable sway of polarity. No law of physics, chemistry, or any other science is ever found free from inherent opposite or contrasted principles. Physical science, then, cannot formulate laws outside of Maya, the very fabric and structure of creation. Nature herself is Maya. Natural science must perforce deal with her ineluctable quiddity. In her own domain, she is eternal and inexhaustible. Future scientists can do no more than probe one aspect after another of her varied infinitude. Science thus remains in a perpetual flux, unable to reach finality, fit indeed to discover the laws of an already existing and functioning cosmos, but powerless to detect the law-framer and soul operator. The majestic manifestations of gravitation and electricity have become known, but what gravitation and electricity are, no mortal knoweth. To surmount Maya was the task assigned to the human race by the millennial prophets to rise above the duality of creation and perceive the unity of the Creator was conceived as man's highest goal. Those who cling to the cosmic illusion must accept its essential law of polarity. Flow and ebb, rise and fall, day and night, pleasure and pain, good and evil, birth and death. This cyclic pattern assumes a certain anguishing monotony after man has gone through a few thousand human births. He begins then to cast a hopeful eye beyond the compulsions of Maya. To remove the veil of Maya is to uncover the secret of creation. He who thus denudes the universe is the only true monotheist. All others are worshipping heathen images. So long as man remains subject to the dualistic illusions of nature, the Janus-faced Maya is his goddess. He cannot know the one true God. The world illusion, Maya, manifests in men as avidya, literally not knowledge, ignorant delusion. Maya or avidya can never be destroyed through intellectual conviction or analysis, 
but solely through attaining the interior state of Nirbikalpa Samadhi. The Old Testament prophets and seers of all lands and ages spoke from that state of consciousness. Ezekiel said, Afterwards he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh towards the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. Through the divine eye in the forehead, east, the yogi sails his consciousness into omnipresence, hearing the word, or om, divine sound of many waters, the vibrations of light that constitute the sole reality of creation. Among the trillion mysteries of the cosmos, the most phenomenal is light. Unlike sound waves, whose transmission requires air or other material media, light waves pass freely through the vacuum of interstellar space. Even the hypothetical ether, held as the interplanetary medium of light in the undulatory theory, may be discarded on the Einsteinian grounds that the geometrical properties of space render unnecessary a theory of ether. Under either hypothesis, light remains the most subtle, the freest from material dependence of any natural manifestation. In the gigantic conceptions of Einstein, the velocity of light, 186,300 miles per second, dominates the whole theory of relativity. He proves, mathematically, that the velocity of light is, so far as man's finite mind is concerned, the only constant of a universe in flux. On the sole absolute of light velocity depend all human standards of time and space. Not abstractly eternal, as hitherto considered, time and space are relative and finite factors. They derive their conditional measurement validities only in reference to the yardstick of light velocity. In joining space as a dimensional relativity, time is now stripped to its rightful nature, a simple essence of ambiguity. With a few equational strokes of his pen, Einstein banished from the universe every fixed reality except that of light. In a later development, his unified field theory, the great physicist sought to embody in one mathematical formula the laws of gravitation and of electromagnetism. Reducing the cosmical structure to variations on a single law, Einstein has reached across the ages to the Rishis who proclaimed a sole fabric of creation, a protean Maya. On the epochal theory of relativity have arisen the mathematical possibilities of exploring the ultimate atom. Great scientists are now boldly asserting not only that the atom is energy rather than matter, but that atomic energy is essentially mind stuff. The frank realization that physical science is concerned with a world of shadows is one of the most significant advances. Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington writes in The Nature of the Physical World. In the world of physics, we watch a shadow graph performance of the drama of familiar life. The shadow of my elbow rests on the shadow table as the shadow ink flows over the shadow paper. It is all symbolic, and as a symbol, the physicist leaves it. Then comes the alchemist mind, who transmutes the symbols. To put the conclusion crudely, the stuff of the world is mind stuff. With the recent devising of an electron microscope came definite proof of the light essence of atoms and of the inescapable duality of nature. 
the New York Times gave the following report of a 1937 demonstration of the electron microscope before a meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The crystalline structure of tungsten, hitherto known only indirectly by means of X-rays, stood outlined boldly on a fluorescent screen, showing nine atoms in their correct positions in the space lattice, a cube with one atom in each corner and one in the centre. The atoms in the crystal lattice of the tungsten appeared on the fluorescent screen as points of light, arranged in geometric pattern. Against this crystal cube of light, the bombarding molecules of air could be observed as dancing points of light similar to points of sunlight shimmering on moving waters. The principle of the electron microscope was first discovered in 1927 by Drs. Clinton J. Davison and Lester H. Germer of the Bell Telephone Laboratories, New York City, who found that the electron has a dual personality, partaking of the characteristics both of a particle and a wave. The wave quality gave the electron the characteristic of light, and a search was begun to devise means for focusing electrons in a manner similar to the focusing of light by means of a lens. For his discovery of the Jekyll-Hyde quality of the electron, which showed that the entire realm of physical nature has a dual personality, Dr. Davison received the Nobel Prize in Physics. The stream of knowledge, Sir James Jeans writes, in The Mysterious Universe, is heading towards a non-mechanical reality. The universe begins to look more like a great thought than like a great machine. Twentieth-century science is thus sounding like a page from the hoary Vedas. From science, then, if it must be so, let man learn the philosophic truth that there is no material universe. Its warp and woof is maya, illusion. Under analysis, all its mirages of reality dissolve, as one by one the reassuring props of a physical cosmos crash beneath him. Man dimly perceives his idolatrous reliance, his transgression of the divine command, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. In his famous equation, outlining the equivalence of mass and energy, Einstein proved that the energy in any particle of matter is equal to its mass or weight multiplied by the square of the velocity of light. The release of the atomic energies is brought about through annihilation of the material particles. The death of matter has given birth to an atomic age. Light velocity is a mathematical standard or constant not because there is an absolute value in 186,300 miles a second, but because no material body whose mass increases with its velocity can ever attain the velocity of light. Stated another way, only a material body whose mass is infinite could equal the velocity of light. This conception brings us to the law of miracles. Masters, who are able to materialize and dematerialize their bodies and other objects, and to move with the velocity of light, and to utilize the creative light rays in bringing into instant visibility any physical manifestation, have fulfilled the lawful condition, their mass is infinite. The consciousness of a perfected yogi is effortlessly identified not with a narrow body but with the universal structure. Gravitation, whether the force of Newton or the Einsteinian manifestation of inertia, is powerless to compel a master to exhibit the property of weight. 
the distinguishing gravitational condition of all material objects. He who knows himself as the omnipresent spirit is subject no longer to the rigidities of a body in time and space. The imprisoning rings pass not, have yielded to the solvent, I am he. Let there be light, and there was light. In the creation of the universe, God's first command brought into being the structural essential, light. On the beams of this immaterial medium occur all divine manifestations. Devotees of every age testify to the appearance of God as flame and light. His eyes were as a flame of fire, St. John tells us, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. A yogi who through perfect meditation has merged his consciousness with the Creator perceives the cosmical essence as light, vibrations of life energy. To him there is no difference between the light rays composing water and the light rays composing land. Free from matter consciousness, free from the three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time, a master transfers his body of light with equal ease over or through the light rays of earth, water, fire and air. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Matthew 6, 22 Long concentration on the liberating spiritual eye has enabled the yogi to destroy all delusions concerning matter and its gravitational weight. He sees the universe as the Lord created it, an essentially undifferentiated mass of light. Optical images, Dr. L. T. Trolland of Harvard tells us, are built up on the same principle as the ordinary half-turn engravings. That is, they are made up of minute dottings, or stipplings far too small to be detected by the eye. The sensitiveness of the retina is so great that a visual sensation can be produced by relatively few quanta of the right kind of light. The law of miracles is operable by any man who has realized that the essence of creation is light. A master is able to employ his divine knowledge of light phenomena to project instantly into perceptible manifestation the ubiquitous light atoms. The actual form of the projection, whatever it be, a tree, a medicine, a human body, is determined by the yogi's wish and by his power of will and of visualization. At night, man enters the state of dream consciousness and escapes from the false egotistic limitations that daily hem him round. In sleep he has an ever-recurrent demonstration of the omnipotence of his mind. Lo, in the dream appear his long-dead friends, the remotest continents, the resurrected scenes of his childhood. That free and unconditioned consciousness which all men briefly experience in certain of their dreams is the permanent state of mind of a God-tuned master. Innocent of all personal motives and employing the creative will bestowed on him by the Creator, a yogi rearranges the light atoms of the universe to satisfy any sincere prayer of a devotee. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Genesis 1.26 For this purpose were man and creation made, that he should rise up as master of Maya, knowing his dominion over the cosmos. In 1915, 
Shortly after I had entered the Swami order, I witnessed a strange vision. Through it, I came to understand the relativity of human consciousness and clearly perceived the unity of the eternal light behind the painful dualities of Maya. The vision descended on me as I sat one morning in my little attic room in Father's Garpa Road home. For months the First World War had been raging in Europe. I had been reflecting sadly on the vast toll of death. As I closed my eyes in meditation, my consciousness was suddenly transferred to the body of a captain in command of a battleship. The thunder of guns split the air as shots were exchanged between shore batteries and the ship's cannons. A huge shell hit the powder magazine and tore my ship asunder. I jumped into the water, together with a few sailors who had survived the explosion. Heart pounding, I reached the shore safely, but alas, a stray bullet ended its swift flight in my chest. I fell groaning to the ground. My whole body was paralysed, yet I was aware of possessing it as one is conscious of a leg gone to sleep. At last, the mysterious footstep of death has caught up with me, I thought. With a final sigh, I was about to sink into unconsciousness when, lo, I found myself seated in the lotus posture in my Garpa Road room. Hysterical tears poured forth as I joyfully stroked and pinched my regained possession, a body free from a bullet hole in the breast. I rocked to and fro, inhaling and exhaling, to assure myself that I was alive. Amidst these self-gratulations, again I found my consciousness transferred to the captain's dead body by the gory shore. Utter confusion of mind came upon me. Lord, I prayed, am I dead or alive? A dazzling play of light filled the whole horizon. A soft rumbling vibration formed itself into words. What has life or death to do with light? In the image of my light I have made you. The relativities of life and death belong to the cosmic dream. Behold your dreamless being. Awake, my child. Awake. As steps in man's awakening, the Lord inspires scientists to discover, at the right time and place, the secrets of his creation. Many modern discoveries help man to apprehend the cosmos as a varied expression of one power, light, guided by divine intelligence. The wonders of the motion picture, of radio, of television, of radar, of the photoelectric cell, the amazing electric eye of atomic energies, are all based on the electromagnetic phenomenon of light. The motion picture art can portray any miracle. From the impressive visual standpoint, no marvel is barred to trick photography. A man may be seen as a transparent astral body that is rising from his gross physical form. He can walk on the water resurrect the dead, reverse the natural sequence of developments, and play havoc with time and space. The expert may assemble the photographic images as he pleases, achieving optical wonders similar to those that a true master produces with actual light rays. Motion pictures, with their lifelike images, illustrate many truths concerning creation. The cosmic director has written his own plays and has summoned the tremendous casts for the pageant of the centuries. From the dark booth of eternity, he sends his beams of light through the films of successive ages, and pictures are thrown on the backdrop of space. Just as cinematic images appear to be real, but are only combinations of light and shade, 
so is the universal variety a delusive seeming. The planetary spheres, with their countless forms of life, are naught but figures in a cosmic motion picture. Temporarily true to man's five sense perceptions, the transitory scenes are cast on the screen of human consciousness by the infinite creative beam. A cinema audience may look up and see that all screen images are appearing through the instrumentality of one imageless beam of light. The colourful universal drama is similarly issuing from the single white light of a cosmic source. With inconceivable ingenuity, God is staging super-colossal entertainment for his children, making them actors as well as audience in his planetary theatre. One day, I entered a cinema house to view a newsreel of the European battlefields. The First World War was still being waged in the West. The newsreel presented the carnage with such realism that I left the theatre with a troubled heart. Lord, I prayed, why dost thou permit such suffering? To my intense surprise, an instant answer came in the form of a vision of the actual European battlefields. The scenes, filled with the dead and dying, far surpassed in ferocity any representation of the newsreel. Look intently, a gentle voice spoke to my inner consciousness. You will see that these scenes, now being enacted in France, are nothing but a play of chiaroscuro. They are the cosmic motion picture, as real and as unreal as the theatre newsreel you have just seen. A play within a play. My heart was still not comforted. The divine voice went on. Creation is light and shadow both, else no picture is possible. The good and evil of Maya must ever alternate in supremacy. If joy were ceaseless here in this world, would man ever desire another? Without suffering, he scarcely cares to recall that he has forsaken his eternal home. Pain is a prod to remembrance. The way of escape is through wisdom. The tragedy of death is unreal. Those who shudder at it are like an ignorant actor who dies of fright on the stage where nothing more has been fired at him than a blank cartridge. My sons are children of light. They will not sleep for ever in delusion. Although I had read scriptural accounts of Maya, they had not given me the deep insight that came with personal visions and with the accompanying words of consolation. One's values are profoundly changed when he is finally convinced that creation is only a vast motion picture and that not in it, but beyond it, lies his own reality. After I had finished writing this chapter, I sat on my bed in the lotus posture. My room was dimly lit by two shaded lamps. Lifting my gaze, I noticed that the ceiling was dotted with small mustard-coloured lights, scintillating and quivering with a radium-like luster. Myriads of pencilled rays, like sheets of rain, gathered into a transparent shaft and poured silently upon me. At once my physical body lost its grossness and became metamorphosed into astral texture. I felt a floating sensation as, barely touching the bed, the weightless body shifted slightly and alternately to left and right. I looked around the room. The furniture and walls were as usual, but the little mass of light had so multiplied that the ceiling was invisible. I was wonderstruck. This is the cosmic motion picture mechanism. A voice spoke as though from within the light, shedding its beam 
on the white screen of your bedsheets. It is producing the picture of your body. Behold, your form is nothing but light. I gazed at my arms and moved them back and forth, yet could not feel their weight. Ecstatic joy overwhelmed me. The cosmic stem of light, blossoming as my body, seemed a divine reproduction of the light beams that stream out of the projection booth in a cinema house and make manifest the pictures on the screen. For a long time I experienced this motion picture of my body in the faintly lit theatre of my own bedroom. Though I have had many visions, none was ever more singular. As the illusion of a solid body was completely dissipated, and as my realization deepened that the essence of all objects is light, I looked up to the throbbing stream of lifetrons and spoke entreatingly, Divine light, please withdraw this, my humble bodily picture, into thyself, even as Elijah was drawn up to heaven in a chariot of flame. This prayer was evidently startling. The beam disappeared. My body resumed its normal weight and sank on the bed. A swarm of dazzling ceiling lights flickered and vanished. My time to leave this earth had apparently not arrived. Besides, I thought philosophically, Elijah might well be displeased at my presumption. A miracle is commonly considered to be an effect or event without law or beyond law. But all events in our precisely adjusted universe are lawfully wrought and lawfully explicable. The so-called miraculous powers of a great master are a natural accompaniment to his exact understanding of subtle laws that operate in the inner cosmos of consciousness. Nothing may truly be said to be a miracle except in the profound sense that everything is a miracle, that each of us is encased in an intricately organized body and is set upon an earth whirling through space among the stars. Is anything more commonplace or more miraculous? Great prophets like Christ and Nehiri Mahashai usually perform many miracles. Such masters have a large and difficult spiritual mission to execute for mankind. Miraculously helping those in distress appears to be part of that mission. Divine fiats are required against incurable diseases and insoluble human problems. When Christ was asked by the nobleman to heal his dying son at Capernaum, Jesus replied with wry humour, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. But he added, Go thy way, thy son liveth. In this chapter I have given the Vedic explanation of Maya, the magical power of illusion that underlies the phenomenal worlds. Western science has already discovered that a magic of unreality pervades atomic matter. However, it is not only nature, but man also, in his mortal aspect, who is subject to Maya, the principle of relativity, contrast, duality, inversion, oppositional states. It should not be imagined that the truth about Maya was understood only by the rishis. The Old Testament prophets called Maya by the name of Satan, literally in Hebrew, the adversary. The Greek Testament, as an equivalent for Satan, uses diabolos, or devil. Satan, or Maya, is the cosmic magician who produces multiplicity of forms to hide the one formless verity. In God's plan and play, Leela, the sole function of Satan, or Maya, 
is an attempt to divert man from spirit to matter, from reality to unreality. Christ describes Maya picturesquely as a devil, a murderer, and a liar. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. The devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That is, the manifestation of Christ consciousness within man's own being effortlessly destroys the illusions or works of the devil. Maya is from the beginning because of its structural inherence in the phenomenal worlds. These are ever in transitional flux as antithesis to the divine immutability. Chapter 31 An Interview with the Sacred Mother Revered Mother, I was baptized in infancy by your prophet husband. He was the guru of my parents and of my own guru, Sri Yukteswarji. Will you therefore give me the privilege of hearing a few incidents in your sacred life? I was addressing Srimati Kashimuni, the life companion of Lahiri Mahashya. Finding myself in Banaras for a short period, I was fulfilling a long-felt desire to visit the venerable lady. She received me graciously in the home of the Lahiri family in the Garudeshwar Mahula section of Banaras. Although aged, she was blooming like a lotus, emanating a spiritual fragrance. She was of medium build, with fair skin, a slender neck, and large, lustrous eyes. Son, you are welcome here. Come upstairs. Kashimoni led the way to a very small room where, for a time, she had lived with her husband. I felt honoured to witness the shrine in which the peerless master had condescended to play the human drama of matrimony. The gentle lady motioned me to a pillow seat by her side. It was years before I came to realise the divine stature of my husband, she began. One night, in this very room, I had a vivid dream. Glorious angels floated in unimaginable grace above me. So realistic was the sight that I awoke at once. Strangely, the room was enveloped in dazzling light. My husband, in lotus posture, was levitated in the centre of the room, surrounded by angels. In supplicating dignity, they were worshipping him with palm-folded hands. Astonished beyond measure, I was convinced that I was still dreaming. Woman, Lahiri Mahashai said, you are not dreaming. Forsake your sleep for ever and ever. As he slowly descended to the floor, I prostrated myself at his feet. Master, I cried, again and again I bow before you. Will you forgive me for having considered you as my husband? I die with shame to realize that I have remained asleep in ignorance by the side of one who is divinely awakened. From this night, you are no longer my husband, but my guru. Will you accept my insignificant self as your disciple? The master touched me gently. Sacred soul, arise. You are accepted. He motioned toward the angels. Please bow in turn to each of these holy saints. After I had finished my humble genuflections, the angelic voices sounded together 
like a chorus in an ancient scripture. Consort of the Divine One, Thou art blessed, we salute Thee. They bowed at my feet, and lo, their effulgent forms vanished, the room darkened. My guru asked me to receive initiation into Kriya Yoga. Of course, I replied, I am sorry not to have had that blessing earlier in my life. The time was not ripe, Lahiri Mahashai smiled consolingly. Much of your karma I have silently helped you to work out. Now you are willing and ready. He touched my forehead. Masses of whirling light appeared. The radiance gradually formed itself into an opal-blue spiritual eye, ringed in gold and centred with a white pentagonal star. Penetrate your consciousness through the star into the kingdom of the infinite. My guru's voice had a new note, soft like distant music. Vision after vision broke as oceanic surf on the shores of my soul. The panoramic spheres finally melted in a sea of bliss. I lost myself in ever-surging blessedness. When I returned hours later to awareness of this world, the Master gave me the technique of Kriya Yoga. From that night on, Lahiri Mahashai never slept in my room again, nor thereafter did he ever sleep. He remained in the front room downstairs, in the company of his disciples, both by day and by night. The illustrious lady fell into silence. Realizing the uniqueness of her relationship with the sublime yogi, I finally ventured to ask for further reminiscences. Son, you are greedy. Nevertheless, you shall have one more story. She smiled shyly. I will confess a sin that I committed against my guru husband. Some months after my initiation, I began to feel forlorn and neglected. One morning, Lahiri Mahashai entered this little room to fetch an article. I quickly followed him. Overcome by delusion, I addressed him scathingly. You spend all your time with the disciples. What about your responsibilities for your wife and children? I regret that you do not interest yourself in providing more money for the family. The master glanced at me for a moment, then lo, he was gone. Awed and frightened, I heard a voice resounding from every part of the room. It is all nothing, don't you see? How could a nothing like me produce riches for you? Guruji, I cried, I implore, pardon a million times. My sinful eyes can see you no more. Please appear in your sacred form. I am here. This reply came from above me. I looked up and saw the master materialize in the air, his head touching the ceiling. His eyes were like blinding flames. Beside myself with fear, I lay sobbing at his feet after he had quietly descended to the floor. Woman, he said, seek divine wealth, not the paltry tinsel of earth. After acquiring inward treasure, you will find that outward supply is always forthcoming. He added, one of my spiritual sons will make provision for you. My guru's words naturally came true. A disciple did leave a considerable sum for our family. I thanked Kashi Muni for sharing with me her wondrous experiences. On the following day, I returned to her home and enjoyed several hours of philosophical discussion with Tinkuri and Dukuri Lahiri. These two saintly sons of India's great yogi followed closely in his ideal footsteps. Both men were fair, tall, 
stalwart and heavily bearded, with soft voices and an old-fashioned charm of manner. His wife was not the only woman disciple of Lahiri Mahashai. There were hundreds of others, including my mother. A woman, Chela, once asked the guru for his photograph. He handed her a print, remarking, If you deem it a protection, then it is so. Otherwise, it is only a picture. A few days later, this woman and Lahiri Mahashai's daughter-in-law happened to be studying the Bhagavad Gita at a table behind which hung the guru's photograph. An electrical storm broke out with great fury. Lahiri Mahashai, protect us. The women bowed before the picture. Lightning struck the book on the table, but the two devotees were unhurt. I felt as though a sheet of ice were placed around me to ward off the scorching heat, the Chala related. Lahiri Mahashai performed two miracles in connection with a woman disciple, Abhoya. She and her husband, a Calcutta lawyer, started one day for Banaras to visit the Guru. Their carriage was delayed by heavy traffic. They reached the Howrah main station in Calcutta only to hear the Banaras train whistling for departure. Abhoya, near the ticket office, stood quietly. Lahiri Mahashai, I beseech thee to stop the train, she silently prayed. I cannot suffer the pangs of delay in waiting another day to see thee. The wheels of the snorting train continued to move round and round, but there was no onward progress. The engineer and passengers descended to the platform to view the phenomenon. An English railroad guard approached Apoya and her husband. Contrary to all precedent, the guard volunteered his services. Babu, he said, give me the money. I will buy your tickets while you get aboard. As soon as the couple were seated and had received their tickets, the train slowly moved forward. In panic, the engineer and passengers clambered again to their places, knowing neither how the train started nor why it had stopped in the first place. Arriving at the home of Lahiri Mahashai in Banaras, Abhoya silently prostrated herself before the master and tried to touch his feet. Compose yourself, Abhoya, he remarked. How you love to bother me! As if you could not have come here by the next train. Abhoya visited Lahiri Mahashai on another memorable occasion. This time she wanted his intercession, not with the train, but with the stork. I pray you to bless me that my ninth child live, she said. Eight babies have been born to me, all died soon after birth. The master smiled sympathetically. Your coming child will live. Please follow my instructions carefully. The baby, a girl, will be born at night. See that the oil lamp is kept burning until dawn. Do not fall asleep and thus allow the light to become extinguished. Abhoya's child was a daughter, born at night, exactly as foreseen by the omniscient guru. The mother instructed her nurse to keep the lamp filled with oil. Both women kept the urgent vigil far into the early morning hours, but finally fell asleep. The lamp oil was almost gone. The light flickered feebly. The bedroom door unlatched and flew open with a violent sound. The startled women awoke. Their astonished eyes beheld the form of Lahiri Mahashai. Apoya, behold, the light is almost gone, he pointed to the lamp, which the nurse hastened to refill. As soon as it burned again brightly, the master vanished. The door closed, the latch was affixed without visible agency. 
Abhoya's ninth child survived. In 1935, when I made inquiry, she was still living. One of Lahiri Mahashai's disciples, the Venerable Kali Kumar Roy, related to me many fascinating details of his life with the Master. I was often a guest at his Benares home for weeks at a time, Roy told me. I observed that many saintly figures, dandi swamis, arrived in the quiet of night to sit at the Guru's feet. Sometimes they would engage in discussion of meditational and philosophical points. At dawn, the exalted guests would depart. I found, during my visits, that the Hiri Mahashai did not once lie down to sleep. During an early period of my association with the Master, I had to contend with the opposition of my employer, Roy went on. He was steeped in materialism. I don't want religious fanatics on my staff, he would sneer. If ever I meet your charlatan guru, I shall give him some words to remember. This threat failed to interrupt my regular program. I spent nearly every evening in my guru's presence. One night, my employer followed me and rushed rudely into the parlour. He doubtless intended to utter the remarks he had promised. No sooner had the man seated himself than Lahiri Mahashai addressed the group of about twelve disciples. Would you all like to see a picture? When we nodded, he asked us to darken the room. Sit behind one another in a circle, he said, and place your hands over the eyes of the man in front of you. I was not surprised to observe that my employer also was following, albeit unwillingly, the master's directions. In a few minutes, Lahiri Mahashai asked us what we were seeing. Sir, I replied, a beautiful woman appears. She wears a red-bordered sari and stands near an elephant ear plant. All the other disciples gave the same description. The master turned to my employer. Do you recognize that woman? Yes. The man was evidently struggling with emotions new to his nature. I have been foolishly spending my money on her, though I have a good wife. I am ashamed of the motives that brought me here. Will you forgive me and receive me as a disciple? If you lead a good moral life for six months, I shall accept you. The master added, otherwise I won't have to initiate you. For three months, my employer refrained from temptation. Then he resumed his former relationship with the woman. Two months later, he died. Thus I came to understand my guru's veiled prophecy about the improbability of the man's initiation. Lahiri Mahashai had a famous friend, Trelanga Swami, who was reputed to be over three hundred years old. The two yogis often sat together in meditation. Trelanga's renown is so widespread that few Hindus would deny the possibility of truth in any story of his astounding miracles. If Christ returned to earth and walked the streets of New York, displaying his divine powers, it would cause the same awe among the people that Trelanga created decades ago as he passed through the crowded lanes of Banaras. He was one of the Siddhas, perfected beings, who have cemented India against the erosions of time. On many occasions the Swami was seen to drink, with no ill effect, the most deadly poisons. Thousands of people, including a few who are still living, have seen Trilanga floating on the Ganges. For days together he would sit on top of the water or remain hidden for very long periods under the waves. A common sight at Manikarnika Ghat was the Swami's motionless body on the blistering stone slabs, 
wholly exposed to the merciless Indian sun. By these feats, Trelanga sought to teach man that human life need not depend on oxygen or certain conditions and precautions. Whether the great master was above water or under it, and whether or not his body challenged the fierce solar rays, he proved that he lived by divine consciousness. Death could not touch him. The yogi was great not only spiritually, but physically. His weight exceeded three hundred pounds, a pound for each year of his life. As he ate very seldom, the mystery is increased. A master, however, easily ignores all usual rules of health when he desires to do so for some special reason, often a subtle one known only to himself. Great saints, who have awakened from the cosmic Mayak dream and have realized this world as an idea in the divine mind, can do as they wish with the body, knowing it to be only a manipulable form of condensed or frozen energy. Though physical scientists now understand that matter is nothing but congealed energy, illuminated masters have passed victoriously from theory to practice in the field of matter control. Trelanga always remained completely nude. The harassed police of Banaras came to regard him as a baffling problem child. The natural Swami, like the early Adam in the Garden of Eden, was unconscious of his nakedness. The police were quite conscious of it, however and unceremoniously committed him to jail. General embarrassment ensued. The enormous body of Trelanga was soon seen, in its usual entirety, on the prison roof. His cell, still securely locked, offered no clue to his mode of escape. The discouraged officers of the law once more performed their duty. This time a guard was posted before the Swami's cell. Might again retired before right. The great master was soon observed in his nonchalant stroll over the roof. The goddess of justice wears a blindfold. In the case of Trelanga, the outwitted police decided to follow her example. The great yogi preserved a habitual silence. In spite of his round face and huge barrel-like stomach, Trelanga ate only occasionally. After weeks without food, he would break his fast with potfuls of clabbered milk offered to him by devotees. A sceptic once determined to expose Trelanga as a charlatan. A large bucket of calcium-lime mixture used in whitewashing walls was placed before the Swami. Master, the materialist said in mock reverence, I have brought you some clabbered milk. Please drink it. Trelanga unhesitatingly drank to the last drop the quarts of burning lime. In a few minutes the evildoer fell to the ground in agony. Help! Swami, help, he cried, I am on fire, forgive my wicked test. The great yogi broke his habitual silence. Scoffer, he said, you did not realize, when you offered me poison, that my life is one with your own. Except for my knowledge that God is present in my stomach, as in every atom of creation, the lime would have killed me. Now that you know the divine meaning of boomerang, never again play tricks on anyone. The sinner healed by Trelanga's words, slunk feebly away. The reversal of pain was not a result of the Master's will, but of the operation of the law of justice that upholds creation's farthest swinging orb. The functioning of the divine law is instantaneous for men of God-realization like Trelanga. They have banished forever all thwarting cross-currents of ego. 
faith in the automatic adjustments of righteousness, often paid in an unexpected coin, as in the case of Trelanga and the would-be murderer, assuages our hasty indignance at human injustice. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. What need for man's poor resources? The universe duly conspires for retribution. Dull minds discredit the possibility of divine justice. Love, omniscience, immortality, airy scriptural conjectures. Men with this insensitive viewpoint, all us before the cosmic spectacle, set into motion in their lives a discordant train of events that ultimately compels them to seek wisdom. The omnipotence of spiritual law was referred to by Jesus on the occasion of his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. As the disciples and the multitude shouted for joy and cried peace in heaven and glory in the highest, certain Pharisees complained of the undignified spectacle. Master, they protested, rebuke thy disciples. But Jesus replied that if his disciples were silenced, the stones would immediately cry out. In this reprimand to the Pharisees, Christ was pointing out that divine justice is no figurative abstraction, and that a man of peace, though his tongue be torn from its roots, will yet find his speech and his defence in the bedrock of creation, the universal order itself. Think you, Jesus was saying, to silence men of peace? As well may you hope to throttle the voice of God, whose very stones sing His glory and His omnipresence. Will you demand that men not celebrate together in honour of the peace in heaven? Will you counsel them to gather in multitudes and express their oneness only on occasions of war on earth? Then make your preparations, O Pharisees, to overtopple the foundations of the world. For gentle men, as well as stones or earth, and water and fire and air shall rise up against you, to bear witness to the divine harmony in creation. The grace of the Christ-like yogi, Trelanga, was once bestowed on my Sijo Mama, maternal uncle. One morning, uncle saw the master amid a crowd of devotees at a Banaras Ghat. He managed to edge his way close to Trelanga and humbly to touch the yogi's feet. Uncle was astonished to find himself instantly freed from a painful chronic disease. The only known living disciple of the great yogi is a woman, Shankari Maiju. Daughter of one of Trelanga's disciples, she received the Swami's training from her early childhood. She lived for forty years in a series of lonely Himalayan caves near Badrinath, Kedranath, Amarnath and Pasupatinath. The Brahmacharini, woman aesthetic, born in 1826, is now well over the century mark. Not aged in appearance, however, she has retained her black hair, sparkling teeth, and amazing energy. She comes out of her seclusion every few years to attend the periodical melas, or religious fairs. This woman saint often visited Lahiri Mahashai. She has related that one day, in the Barakpur section near Calcutta, while she was sitting by Lahiri Mahashai's side, his great guru Babaji quietly entered the room and held converse with them both. The deathless master was wearing a wet cloth, she recalls, as though he had just come from a dip in the river. He blessed me with some spiritual counsel. Trelanga, 
on a certain occasion in Benares, forsook his usual silence in order to pay public honour to Lahiri Mahashai. One of Trelanga's disciples objected. Sir, he said, why do you, a swami and a renunciant, show such respect to a householder? My son, Trelanga replied, Lahiri Mahashai is like a divine kitten, remaining wherever the cosmic mother has placed him. While dutifully playing the part of a worldly man, he has received that perfect self-realization which I have sought by renouncing everything, even my loincloth.